Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast, check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. In this episode, I chat with Dr. Craig Howe about the star knowledge that has been retained by the Lakota people, a subculture of the native Sioux people. Are you ready? Let's get to it. If you've been with me on Night Sky Tourists for very long, you know that I love learning about the cultural astronomy of different people around the world. I love the way it connects us to such a long-standing heritage of our relationship with the night sky. Most of us think of Greek mythologies, and we smirk at the idea that people ever really believed this stuff. But the fact is, the ancient star stories of cultures around the world shaped their identity as a people, and it instructed their daily lives. I always feel sad when I hear that a culture's star knowledge has been lost. When I spoke to Paul Kerno in episode 34, he emphasized how some of the aboriginal star knowledge has been lost because it was intended to be passed on orally. Tonight's guest, Dr. Craig Howe, specializes in Lakota star knowledge, He also mentions the loss of star knowledge, but he points out that nomadic people like the Lakota didn't rely on the stars quite as heavily. Dr. Howe is the founder and director of the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies and has served as the deputy assistant for cultural resources at the National Museum of the American Indian at the Smithsonian Institute. He has authored articles and book chapters on numerous topics, including tribal studies and native studies, and he has developed innovative tribal histories projects and museum exhibitions. He was raised on his family's cattle ranch in the La Creek district of the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and he's a citizen of the Oglala Sioux tribe. Please join me tonight in welcoming to the podcast, Dr. Craig Howe. Thank you so much for joining me on the Night Sky Tourist podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So first of all, I w- would you share with us what the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies is? It's a small uh, research and education center that was established in 2004. And coincidentally, when the Secretary of State here in South Dakota approved it was December 21st of 2004. So on, on the winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere and the summer solstice of the Southern Hemisphere, we were recognized as, a, as an organization, a nonprofit organization. Our mission is to increase knowledge and awareness of uh, American Indian communities and issues important to them. So we do that through uh, educational resources and projects of different types, such as exhibits and uh, DVDs, even uh, uh, films like the Lakota Star Knowledge one. Right, which is how I was introduced to you. Someone actually mailed that DVD to me after listening to my first podcast. They were like, oh, if you like this stuff, you need to you need to talk to this guy. <laughs> Good. 
<laughs> so I'm very happy to finally be doing that. And so yeah. I have a question and it might be a silly question, but my question is, of course, everybody's heard of the Dakotas, like South and North Dakota. Um, is What's the difference between Dakota and Lakota? Where is there a difference? Yes. Yep. There's a substantial difference, but also the, uh, they and also Nakota, these are three divisions of of a confederacy that was called and is called the Ocheti Shakowin, the seven council fires. And the analog of that in English is Sioux. Uh, but, you know, that's this uh, word from Ojibwe, which is traditional, I guess, enemy of Lakotas and Dakotas and Nakotas. Uh, they called uh, these Ocheti Shakowin peoples the uh, Narwe Sioux. And the French, the early French, uh, just used that last syllable "su," and that's where that word comes from. So it's in none of the none of the native languages. Uh, there's these efforts, of course, to to revive and to use the Ocheti Shakwin term for the global uh, all three divisions and Dakota for the eastern division, Nakota for the central division, and Lakota for the western division. Okay, so that makes sense. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Yes. So I'm curious what attracted you to learning about Lakota star knowledge? I'm not quite sure, but I've always, I grew up on a ranch here in the reservation and, uh, uh, you know, we just have great night skies. Uh, the, all this dark sky movement, it, this is where it's centered at a lot. It's, we just have very, very few uh, uh, lights out here, but Anyway, the stars are always there and, and it's just this amazing feeling and, you know, every night, basically, when you can see all those stars. So I'm not sure when the interest really kind of kicked in, but when I was at the Smithsonian, we I decided to organize one of the permanent exhibits around uh, constellations. And that's where it became real serious work as far as researching and seeing how these different tribes across this whole hemisphere organize and think about the stars. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in the Northern Panhandle of Idaho. And, you know, I suppose it doesn't matter that that's where I grew up when it comes to this, but I don't remember ever hearing star stories hmm. as a child. You know, I didn't hear people around me ever talking about them. And of course, as an adult, you know, I kind of started learning, oh, well, these Greek and Roman myths, those are star stories. That didn't really ever occur to me <laughs> until I was older. But have the Lakota always preserved or retained their star stories? Or is this something, like, is this preservation of it something new you're doing? Well, no, I think these have been here from as long as anyone can remember, and they'll go on as long as anyone can remember. What we're doing is just trying to research them from. Um, Kind of more of an academic or scholarly viewpoint and then uh, present them in ways that can reach these different audiences so it's it's not too uh, esoteric and focus on Lakota's uh, star knowledge. We don't really look at American Indian star knowledge or indigenous people star knowledge. Our focus is Lakota star knowledge uh, just as we we're talking about the Greeks, right? We don't talk about Western civilization, we talk about the Greeks, same right. thing quote-unquote indigenous, that's uh, not a useful term mm -hmm. uh, in our viewpoint. So we talk about Lakota star knowledge, not Dakota star knowledge, not Nakota star knowledge, but Lakota star knowledge. 
That's really cool. You know, it's interesting too, I think. And I, and I think maybe this is a little bit of what you're, you're talking about, about bringing it into the academic world is that, you know, we have, we have like the science of the stars of the scientific method, you know, and, and, and these amazing telescopes and things that we can discover that can never be discovered before. And yet this, this star knowledge that you, you know, your people have, or, you know, all of the indigenous people, it is a science. What, what, how can you explain that to us? Well, to me, a science is just something that's systematic. Mm -hmm. So these are very systematic, the, the narratives and the organization, the, the way that people understood the stars and uh, planets to some degree and the moon especially. But at the same time, these were naked eye astronomers mm -hmm. and they didn't really need, uh, for uh, Lakotas, they didn't really need the, the stars for anything <laughs> as far as timing. You know, there seems to be a good direct correlation uh, between sedentary peoples and stars versus mm -hmm. uh, more uh, nomadic peoples and and maybe the moons or something like that but we we just don't have a lot of real strong importance of of the stars how would you describe knowing your own star stories in terms of the way that it really impacts the life of maybe the people in the past but even today i know i saw in the documentary that you were teaching young people your stories what kind of impact does that have? One of the students who was in that video decided to pursue astronomy in college because of the participation in that. So in that case, it, it had at least a short-term impact. I don't know if it's all that important that we, we meaning humans, know these star stories. It's, um, as you said, you didn't know any. I knew very few growing up. Uh, it isn't a negative. And there's really not a lot of everyday applications to that type of uh, knowledge. So it's uh, entertaining, absolutely. It's interesting. And what's fascinating to me is how these stories tie into the bigger picture of a, of a people and you know the cosmology and, and the history of, of people, no matter who those are. So that's that's the interest that I personally have in this. I know that now that I have learned some star stories from different cultures around the world, when I go out and stargaze now, I feel, well, first of all, I had to learn the constellations. Right. I didn't learn them as a kid. I knew where the no. Big Dipper was. You know, I'd heard people say Orion. I'd heard people say Sirius. You know, I'd heard of some of them. I didn't know what they even looked like or where to find them. And I know that, you know, once I found the constellations and then I started learning some of these different stories, I started feeling like when I would go out and stargaze, like, I don't know, it's almost like picking up a, a an old book that I read as a child, you know, there's like this connection to it, a familiarity with it. And I don't know, I feel like it gives it a little more meaning. Yeah, I think it's this, uh, uh, the analog would be like when you drive around a landscape, you know, real well, mm -hmm. and you can point out what happened here, the story that happened there, or where someone did something. And 
it makes that meaningful. And so same with these night skies, you know, instead of traveling around the landscape, we can kind of look around the, mm -hmm. the skyscape and we can say, oh, this is an interesting story here and talk about it. And if it can link to say the phase of the moon or to some something that's going on, it makes it more uh, relevant and engaging to whoever you're talking about. But you can also do it just for ourselves, right? Just being out in there and seeing these and thinking about how amazing it is that all those stars, people link certain ones and other people don't. So it's not like these are universals. This is really uh, culturally specific. Uh, but some of those are universal, are almost universals. I don't know if they are universal, but a lot of people all through time and around the world, they, you know, kind of recognize, for instance, a Big Dipper maybe. But right most of these other constellations are uh, you know organized differently orion is a great example of that you know the the greeks and yeah. romans saw him as this hunter and then the people the maori people you know down there of australia new zealand they they saw a canoe with three brothers sitting in it the three brothers being the belt so yeah. i love it i love hearing how different people saw them the stories that they told to their children and so do you, does, do the Lakota have um, like names for the full moons? Mimima is the word for the full moon. It means round. Uh -huh. and, and it's interesting in Lakota timekeeping, it began with full moons, you know, in the way the Western world does it, it begins with the new moons. Mm -hmm. And so these are full moon to full moon is a month. And so, yeah, the full moon is Mimima, meaning a round, it's round. And then the uh, new moon is week a, meaning it's dead. Mm -hmm. And so there's this different way of thinking about uh, how we title these quote unquote phases of the moon. I feel like it, it makes more sense to start the month with the full moon because you can see it. <laughs> yeah, again, it's just uh, different cultures do different things. And so we have so little information about star knowledge when it comes to Lakotas and I think it, well, I'm not quite sure why. I've already said one reason is just that nomadic peoples, the stars aren't that important, I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you can think of examples, I'm positive, and other people can that would say, oh, no, 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 they're very important. True, I guess. But for Lakotas, there's just so little evidence that it was important. But I did want to loop back to that idea of Orion's Bell. Yeah. And as you, the example you gave, they still are recognizing uh, basically that constellation as something but in Lakota those are those three stars of Orion's belt are part of this huge constellation that stretches from the Pleiades to Sirius mm. and, the, and it's this animal but we have almost no information on it but its head is Pleiades and, and it's called Tayamani is the name of this animal so Tayamani Pa the head of Tayamani is Sirius uh, is uh, Pleiades, Tayamani Sinte, the tail is Sirius. And those three, uh, Orion's belt, those are the backbone of this creature. And then Betelgeuse and Rigel, mm -hmm. those are the ends of where the ribs, so from the, the ribs run from those three stars to Rigel and to, uh, uh, well, Rigel and Betelgeuse. Mm -hmm. And so we know it has a head and a backbone and ribs and a tail, but we, we don't know if it's something that crawled or walked on earth or flew in the air or swam in the water. We just, we don't it's know. Just, it's called Tayamani and that's, 
it's huge. You know, that makes me so curious because I know in that part of the country, there's a lot of dinosaur fossils. Yep. So maybe, maybe that's something really, really, really old. It, it could be. I mean, these are, we just don't know. Again, it's, it's amazing that these questions weren't asked. And that was part of what I, I think I was getting to was that these researchers, ethnologists, and, you know, they, to them, the stars weren't that important. So they didn't think about asking about them very much. Mm -hmm. So in these early records, we, we have almost nothing dealing with stars. But I think if they would have asked, we would have had a lot more. We just don't have very much. I think that's an interesting point you make, though, about the difference between a people who stay put and people who migrate around, you know, um, because the sky does change depending on where you go. How far did the Lakota uh, move throughout the year? Uh, their traditional homelands were up into Canada a little bit, all the way down to just into what, what all the way through what would now be Nebraska and even a little further south and to the west, the uh, Rocky Mountains and to the east, at least the uh, Mississippi River and mm. maybe a little beyond that. But uh, it was a huge territory that these people moved within and they had a lot of exchange networks way beyond that. I, I think it's just that some people claim that these stars are as timing devices, but if you study stars, they just aren't very accurate for that. And it's neat, the Lakota year starts when the ducks return. Ah. The, the full moon uh, nearest to when the ducks return. So again, it, whenever that is, so, you know, it could be in April, might be in March. Those are probably, it's going to be March or April is when that's going to happen. But that's, you know, gives us maybe three full moons, which could be about 50 days apart as wow. far as a start of a year. That's one thing that I find interesting, you know, when you look at the different names of full moons for different months in different cultures, they all kind of had their own names for it, for them. But it's interesting to me because it reflects exactly what you're talking about, you know, like, you know, they've kind of popularized to everybody now that January's full moon is the full wolf moon, you know, and yeah, I don't know where they get that. And I think a lot of times they associate that with Indians. And uh, sure. again, it's just more like stereotypes and caricaturizing that each tribe had different. And if they were as Lakotas, they were these uh, lunar years, then they had to have a, a system where they could account for that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that difference between a lunar year and a solar year. Sure, because you'd have to add another month every once in a while. Right. And so and Lakotas did it by starting their year on the full moon when the nearest when the ducks returned. And then they had two full moons for spring and then four full moons were summer and two full moons were fall. And then the winter could be four or five full mm -hmm. moons. And that's where they could make up that when they needed to have that extra about every third year, they'd need another name for a moon sure and so that's how it was adjusted so if you lived here in arizona your summer you would have to have probably about eight full moons <laughs> yeah, you're right and that's you know this idea of four seasons equal yeah. i don't know who came up with that but it isn't the way the lakotas did it right interesting there was one thing that you talked about in the documentary about the year that the stars fell can you talk about that a little bit yeah that's 
And what makes that an interesting um, event is that it's on every Lakota winter count. And it's one of the few events. And so these winter counts are these pictorial histories. And they go back into the 1700s. And then for every year, each Teoshvai would, would the, the big ballets of the old men would, over the wintertime, they'd select an event for the past year. And then the winter count keeper would draw a, a very basic diagrammatic glyph of that event. And then that, that winter count keeper had to remember the name of the year and then the narrative of, of what happened. Anyway, so you have all these drawings and you don't have any words or any numbers and you find the one glyph on every winter count that shows a bunch of stars and that's the year the stars fell and that's the uh, Leonid meteor showers in 1833 on December, uh, November 12th and 13th, that the night between there, that was an amazing meteor shower uh, and it's in every Lakota winter count. Hmm. So that's that's a way that made this uh, a, a neat event that can uh, link all of these winter counts together. And what we see is that in a winter count, it's all about what the people in a certain Teoshvai experience. So you would have a Teoshvai, I would be in a Teoshvai, everyone would be in different Teoshvais, and we'd record events we experience in the land. Mm -hmm. uh, those are all unique then. But things that happen in the stars, those are common. Mm -hmm. So these winter counts have these meteor showers and uh, comments, and then we can link those and see, oh, there's 1909, there's 1821, or, you know, we can hit all those meteor showers that were visible in, in the northern hemisphere. Oh, I, it makes me wonder what in the world they saw on that night, because yeah. I've never seen anything remarkable enough to uh, call it the year that the stars fell. Yeah, it's what we do have is, and you've seen that in that video, we have those um, uh, woodcuts that were done, you know, and it just looks like it's raining stars. And that's also in that video you've seen um, Marie uh, over at the Beacon Museum. She was cool. I didn't know this until talking to her, but she remembered a story that her dad told her about his father, but they seen all these uh, all those stars moving around and they thought it was a bad omen you know and so they mm -hmm. thought these were enemies so they shot their rifles and their bow and arrows up at these stars to defend the people from from all this chaos that was happening up in the in the sky yeah so uh, obviously something really really dramatic that yeah. probably you and i have never seen in our lives no it's never been seen since but there is a winter count uh, a Lakota winter count, and in 1966, they also mentioned the Leonid meteor showers, and I think it was on November 16th that year. That So it's neat. It's 133 years later, the, uh, the winter count mentions the same meteor shower. Of course, it's, it's here every year. It's just not as incredible as it was in 1833. Right. Yeah. You know, I've read that there can be on rare occasion Thing, like a massive meteor shower. That yeah. So cool to see. <laughs> it would be. I think it'd just be amazing. So this museum that you were just referring to, where could people go to see that? What's so it's called the Beacon Memorial Museum, and it's in um, uh, St. Francis, South Dakota, in the Pine Ridge, uh, sorry, in the uh, Rosebud Reservation. 
Okay. And so that's that's where that museum is. They have a, a phenomenal collection of winter counts. Where can people learn more about your work, uh, the work at the Center for American Indian Research and Native Studies? The best place I would be online uh, through our website, and it's www.nativecairns.org. And on that website, you'd be able to see everything that we're doing. I will put a link to that for everybody that they can click on in the show notes, and that way they can come and see more of what you guys are doing. Uh, I'd appreciate it. That'd be That'd be great. Yes, and I would love for everybody to see this documentary. So I'll find a link for that too. They can purchase that from our uh, website. We do have materials there, educational materials, and that's yeah. one of them. We it also was... have this, and I just happen to have that. We have this. This goes with it. It's uh, what do you call like a we call it a field guide. Okay. So it's called tender reverence, and it's just it shows uh, the constellations, the Lakota constellations, and then. Uh, it's, it's based on that video. And then it has how to find these uh, constellations in night sky. And just happened, I turned it to Tayamani that yes. we were talking about. So, I'm going to have to get that. I have a collection of stuff like that. I'm totally going to get one of those. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, Craig, thank you so much for joining us here. I'm so thrilled to hear you talk about this. Um, you know, just, just learning about what the various cultures all over the world, how they saw the night, night sky, how they interpreted it, you know, and how it impacted their lives. It's, I just think it's so phenomenal, especially because we've lost so much of the night sky to light pollution. I just feel like it's more important than ever for everyone to, you know, to find a deep respect and love for each other's stories so that they don't go away. Right. Yep. I agree completely. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. The questions for our Q&A segments are answered by Ted Blank, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. I've asked Ted to give us a brief update about what's happening on Mars with our helicopter known as Ingenuity. The plucky little Mars helicopter Ingenuity, which was designed to fly only four to five times on Mars, has completed its 19th flight. The mission was actually a technology demonstration program just to see if it would be possible to fly on Mars and control a rotorcraft in the thin Martian atmosphere. But now that the helicopter has achieved that goal, it has moved into operation support mode, which means it is supporting the roving of the Perseverance rover by sending back photographs from the air, allowing the rover to make longer, unattended drives, which allows the rover to explore more and more of Mars's surface. If you have an interest in following the newest Mars mission, visit mars.nasa.gov. You can also find a link to it in the show notes or at nightskytourist.com slash 36. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at nightskytourist.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com slash podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. Don't go away. Our star tour is coming up in just a minute. Hey, Night Sky Tourist fans. Did you know that Night Sky Tourist also has a blog? If you haven't visited it yet, you are missing out on some great stuff. My most recent article includes some valuable tips for stargazing etiquette. You'll also find articles about 
cassidastrophobia, which is a fear of the dark. How to see the gorgeous belt of Venus at twilight, Arizona's dark sky corridor, night vision tricks for epic stargazing, my top 10 dark sky locations in the American Southwest, and so much more. When you sign up for my newsletter, I'll connect you to my newest articles so you don't miss out on any of them. You'll also receive my beautiful full-color stargazing guide called Things to See in the Night Sky in 2022. This free guide takes you month by month across the night sky. You'll know when to see the planets and you'll never miss another meteor shower or eclipse. Visit nightskytourist.com to access the blog and to sign up for the newsletter. And together, we'll fall in love with the dark. It's time for our star tour across the night sky. Gather everyone in your house, and I'll meet you outside under the stars. The equinox is coming up on March 20th. Those of you in the southern hemisphere are likely looking forward to the cooler temperatures of fall, while those of us in the northern hemisphere are happy to emerge from the chill of winter into the warmth of spring. My front yard has the best view of the night sky, so I've created a large compass there. I've also set bricks in the ground that indicate where the sun rises on the equinoxes and the solstices. I love having this set in stone, so to speak, because it's really fun to show people just how far apart the sunrises are on the horizon between summer and winter. I also think it's just a really neat spot to sit and watch the sun rise on those days. It makes me slow down and to think about the transitions of the season and to also consider the transitions that might be occurring in my own life. So give it a try. Choose a spot in your yard where you can see the eastern horizon. Set up a standing stone, and this is where you stand to observe. And then place a marker for the equinox. The sun will rise in this spot on both the spring and the fall equinoxes. Then you're going to place another one on the summer solstice and another one on the winter solstice. Let's start our star tour with the brightest star in the sky, known as Sirius. You're going to want to sit so that you're facing south, and you should be able to easily spot Orion right up in front of you. And Sirius is the really bright star to the lower left of Orion. Of all the stars that can be seen from Earth, with the exception of the Sun, of course, Sirius is the brightest. Now, if Jupiter or Venus were in view right now, they would certainly be brighter, but they're planets, not stars. Sirius is also known as the Dog Star, which I'm going to explain in just a minute. But before that, I want you to get ready for a sciency moment. You ready? Sirius is 8.6 light years away, which means that the light that is entering your eyes from it tonight left the star eight and a half years ago. The star that you see with your naked eye is actually known as Sirius A, and it is a binary star, which means that there's a second star, which is called Sirius B, that you cannot see with your eye, and they orbit each other over the course of 50 years. Sirius A has twice the mass of the sun, and it's 25 times more luminous. Sirius B is almost equal to the sun in mass, but it's one of the most massive white dwarfs known to us. Okay, the dog star. Sirius is the bright star that helps us locate its constellation, 
which is known as Canis Major, or the Big Dog. He's pretty well known as one of Orion's hunting dogs. In Greek mythology, he's depicted standing on his hind legs as he's pursuing a hare, or a rabbit, which is represented by the constellation Lepus. And Lepus is located right under Orion. It's shaped like a quadrilateral or a long rectangle that's kind of pinched in the middle. And it almost looks like a blocky hourglass that's laying on its side. Can you find it? In mythology, Canis Major is associated with Lylops, the fastest dog in the world, one that was destined to catch anything that it pursued. Zeus gave Lylops to Europa as a present, along with a javelin that could not miss. The gift proved to be an unfortunate one, though, as Europa herself met her end at the hands of her husband, Cephalus, who was out hunting with a javelin. Cephalus took the dog to Thebes, a province north of Athens, to hunt down a fox that was causing some trouble there. But like Lylops, the fox was very fast and was destined to never be caught. So once the dog found the fox and started chasing it, the race didn't appear to have any end in sight. So Zeus himself finally ended it by turning both animals to stone, and he placed the dog in the night sky as the constellation Canis Major. Now, Sirius was actually really important to the ancient Egyptians. Every year as the hottest part of summer came along, they would carefully watch the sky before sunrise. Once they saw Sirius rise above the horizon, with the sun following close behind, they knew it was about time for the Nile River to experience its annual flooding. And they relied on this flooding because it brought rich nutrients to the area to sustain the crops for the coming year. They believed that Sirius and the sun merged their heat together at that time, creating those extreme temperatures of the summer. And since they also knew Sirius as the dog star, they referred to those sweltering days as the dog days of summer. Yes, that saying is as old as the pyramids. So we've already spotted Orion, Canis Major, and Lepus. Now look directly above or north of Canis Major and you'll find Gemini, the twins. To the east of Gemini is the small and dim constellation of Cancer, the crab. But if you have any light pollution, you're going to really have a difficult time finding any of those stars. A bit farther to the east from Cancer is the large constellation of Leo, the lion. You can easily find his head by looking for a sickle or a backwards question mark. Okay, one more constellation tonight. Look to the west of Gemini and kind of northwest of Orion to find Taurus, the bull. You can find his face by looking for a sideways V. And then slightly to the northwest of Taurus is Pleiades, and it looks like a tiny dipper, although it's not associated with either of the dippers. Pleiades is known as an asterism, which is actually a smaller picture of stars within a larger constellation, and in this case, it is part of Taurus. Be sure to join me again in two weeks for another look at the ever-changing night sky. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist Podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist Podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher 
and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast too. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Dr. Craig Howe for taking time to share with us about Lakota cultural astronomy. Check out some great links to his work in the show notes or at nightskytourist.com slash 36. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Until then, keep looking up.